When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's pledge season on Slate Podcasts. If you love mom and dad are fighting, you can support it by going to slate.com slash mom and dad plus and signing up. We'll be talking about it more later in the show. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, September 28th, the Parental Obsolescence Edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate and father of Eliza, age six, and Leo, who is three. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 16, Teddy, who is 14, and Lily, who is 17. And I am Carvel Wallace. I'm a writer and editor in the Bay Area, and I am father to Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 14. Today on our show, we'll talk to author Suzanne Buffard about pre-kindergarten, why it matters, and how to make it work. Plus, we've got a question from a listener with long-distance stepchildren who are starting to chafe at spending weekends away from their school friends. And, as always, we'll have triumphs, fails, recommendations. And today on Slate Plus, Slate designer Holly Allen returns to the show to share the story of a truly catastrophic parenting fail that was averted by the skin of her teeth. Uh, First, we have our own triumphs and fails. Rebecca, what happened to you this week? Well, my triumph this week is kind of an epilogue to my fail of last week when I, as you might remember, woke up in the morning, went out, walked the dogs, came home and didn't notice that my children were gone. Uh, This week, I had a situation where that came in handy because I work by day, you might not know this, at a public radio station. uh, And I was pitching our fun drive, which is this week. At 6 a.m. So I had to get up at, you know, like 4.30, shower, get out of the house by 5.30. And for the first time in the many, many years that I've been doing this, my husband Kevin wasn't home. He was away on a business trip. So my kids just had to do the whole morning thing themselves, like the whole, whole morning thing, including walking and feeding the dogs and, you know, making sure that the a note was out for the FedEx guy who was going to be dropping off a package and making themselves breakfast and lunch and getting to school on time. And of course, the biggest one, actually getting out of bed at the right time. So I drove to work. I left the house. It was still pretty dark. Drove to work, came into work, sat down in the studio at six, started pitching the fun drive. 
about 6.50, I get a text from Henry. He's like, we're up, we're dressed, we're eating breakfast, and everything's fine. We're good to go. Dogs are fed. Dogs are walked. Don't worry. Good luck in your uh, pitch shift. So they did it. I can move out now. I mean, this is the triumph, right? Like, I can just (laughs) abandon my home, and they can just do everything. And I am 100% obsolete and um, in no way needed by my children at all anymore. So I guess I have done my job and am able to go to work without fear. No, but seriously, the, the ability to like go do this important work thing that I couldn't change that was inflexible, knowing you can't get someone to help you out, maybe a neighbor or whatever at 630 in the morning. Um, it felt really, really good. And I was really, really proud of them and proud of myself for not freaking out about it and just trusting that it would happen. That's awesome. You can now become awesome. uh, mom emeritus. You no longer have to be an active duty mom at all. What a triumph. A like idea. a retired mom. Yeah, yeah. exactly. She's still around. She sort of weighs in occasionally. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, I had a bit of a fail this week. I, um, you know, one of the, the, there's there's some parenting moves that I have. And one of them is the, like, with young children is the, like, physical horseplay thing. Like, I, I like picking up my kids and throwing them around. And they enjoy being picked up and thrown around. Uh, and especially Leo, people talk about how, like, the, you know, little boys are so much more physical than little girls. And Eliza, when she was little, really liked being picked up and thrown around. But Leo literally could spin, like, if I could spin him all day, if I could hold him above my head and rotate him quickly, like, he would never, ever get tired of that. Just the brain chemistry sensation of, like, violent, jerky spinning movements. He just, that's his thing. He loves it. So ever since he was really little, I've been picking him up and throwing him around a lot. The trouble is that he gets bigger at the same rate that I get older. Uh, <laughs> and and we're like, unfortunately, those two trends are like colliding in a way that's making it pretty clear that the, the amount of like throwing around that happens in our home is going to have to diminish substantially. And that makes me really sad because, uh, you know, it's one of the things we do and it's super fun and, and, and we like it. Um, but there's a move of like, there's, there's a move that he calls where, where's Leo, where he says, do where's Leo, do where's Leo, where I, I, I pick him up, I hang him over my back, I hold on to him by his ankles, so he's dangling by his head. And I say, wait, wait, where did Leo go? Have you seen him around here? And, and whoever is around his mom or his sister or whatever says, no, I haven't seen him. And they kind of roll their eyes that we're doing this again. And I like turn around and say, is he behind me? No, he's not behind me because of course he's rotating with me as I turn. And, and I look stuff. up and he goes down and I look down and he goes up. And so it has both the like physical jerky movements that he craves, but it also has that aspect of like uh, the, the, the dad is being a bumbling oaf and and so there's the comedy routine bit plus the roller coaster bit it's just literally it's his favorite thing um and i tried to do it this weekend and i did it and we did it for a little while and then i had to stop because i could feel my shoulders getting tight and and he you know do it again do where's leo again do it again i'm sorry i really i can't do it again you're too big we got to do something else and and today you know this was on sunday and now it's it's wednesday as we're taping this and i still in order to like look at someone to my left i have to rotate my entire upper body because my my neck doesn't quite rotate in the way that it should uh, so that is my wow. parenting fail, and it's a fail that presages uh, probably another um, few decades, if I'm lucky, of just steady <laughs> physical decline and <laughs> increasing estrangement between myself and my son. 
Yeah. It would appear that op- parental obsolescence is the theme today. <laughs> it has its good sides and its bad sides. <laughs> the triumphs and the fails. <laughs> what about you, Carla? How's your decline into obsolescence going? <laughs> I'm still going and going. In fact, I have the opposite problem, which is that I'm too active as a parent, and that's the root of my fail. As you may have gathered, one of the consistent fails I have is that I am like Ezra in the sense that I am a little bit of a bumbling mad professor, but then I also am not like Ezra in that I have like 30 jobs. And so every once in a while, those things combine <laughs> into a parenting fail. And so um, last night, the, so their kid's mom is out of town. It's been a very, like, it's been a significant stretch for both of us. There's lots of travel right now for both of us. Maybe there always is. I guess I said that a few months ago. It's still happening. So she's out of town. Uh, I'm here, but then I just got back from a trip, but then she's getting back, but then I'm leaving. But anyway, so so when she's out of town, my whole schedule is crazy because she works from home, but I'm doing this other project where I'm not working from home. So I have to move everything around so that I can get back from San Francisco, which is like an hour with traffic to pick up the kids from school, to get them to their house, to sit with them for homework and after school stuff. And they can sort of get around, but it's not, we're not at a point where it's fully like, I'll just be home at six and I'll meet you there. So uh, last night we had such a night. I picked them up from school. I was supposed to be working on this story. I didn't make as much progress as I wanted to because I had a last minute trip this weekend that I didn't plan. And that was stressing me out. So we get to the house and I'm working on the story. And my son wants to process the, whether or not Buddhism is necessary in modern society. So that takes a couple of hours. <laughs> Georgia, <laughs> Georgia is working on probability and permutations. So that takes a little while. And I'm trying to write this story. So you know, it's a typical after school in the Wallace household. So um, so finally, we get everyone gets settled. Ezra does his homework, or at least he says he does. We'll find out. More will be revealed. Uh, Georgia is off doing her thing, and I, I'm working on my story. Then I realize it's getting late. It's time for me to s- figure out what's up for dinner. Because so much time has passed, I decided I'm just going to like splurge and order food to be delivered. So I order the food, Chinese food, get this big feast for everyone. It's going to be great. Food's going to be here any minute. And I get the notification from the app. Hey, your food got picked up. Your food's on the way. And uh, and then right at that moment, that's like 730. And then I get this notification from my calendar saying that don't forget your eight o'clock appointment for the book you're writing. You have to go interview this athlete for the book. You got to go to this spot like t- 10 miles away and interview this guy at eight as you do most Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, shit, I completely forgot that that's tonight. And normally during the day, I like confirm with the guy's assistant to make sure we're happening tonight. Cause he always forgets cause he's busy doing too much stuff too. And so I forgot. So seven 30 comes and I'm like, okay, this is going to be tight, but the food's going to get here. I'll set them up with the food. I'll grab one piece of chicken and then I'll hop in the car and go do this interview. Should be all good. So I go downstairs to wait for the food. No food comes. And then, and then I get the app like notification. Your food is almost there. I go downstairs and wait for the guy. No food. And it slowly dawns on me (laughs) that I have delivered the food to the wrong address. The food is now. At my house, not at the kid's house, the food is delivered. So then so then, someone at my roommate at my house calls me up and goes, hey, did you order like $60 worth of Chinese food? And I'm like, I did. She's like, well, it's here. So, And I was like, ah. So I, so I tell the kids, I'm going to go get the food. I hop in the car. I drive over to, to my house. I get the food. I turn around. I come back. I sit down. I ser- we serve up the food. And then at that point, Georgia emerges and is like, I'm really stressed out because we missed school Monday because they were on a trip with their mom. And... um. And we have this combination and permutation things. I don't know how to do any of them, Dad. You got to help me. 
you got to help me. And I'm like, ah. So and meanwhile, I realized that I haven't heard from the athlete. So I text him and I text his assistant and I haven't heard back. And while I'm waiting to figure out what's happening, 7.54, 7.55, I sit down and I quickly look over all of George's permutations and combination sheets. And because I used to be a math teacher, I actually kind of remember how to do this. So as time is ticking down, I'm quickly trying to explain what it means and how to do it and what these problems mean and how to solve them and how to do the worksheet. And I get through them as quickly as I possibly can. And then the athlete texts back, oh, yeah, I forgot, too. I got the notification at 730. I was at the gym. I'll meet you at the hotel at 830. Great. I hop in the car. I get to the hotel just in time. He shows up. We complete the interview. And that's the end of it. But I really felt like, what am I doing? Like, what is happening? There's just too much. So I guess you could maybe call it a triumph because it sort of happened, but I don't know that much skin of the teethism. I'm not sure how I feel about that. And, I, uh, that's a, that's know. a fail that emerges from just the sheer richness and plenitude of life though. Yeah. <laughs> what a lovely way to look at it. Or you could look at it as a fail that emerges from the sheer richness that is necessary to operate in the Bay area because you, you take so much work and do so many projects because you're trying to put the money together so that you can make it all work. So it's a little bit of a rat race. I'm going to be honest that I had definitely had the, the phrase rat race popped into my head at some point when I was driving over to get the Chinese food. So there we are. All right. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, it's Rebecca. I'm here with Gabe and Carvel from Slate's Mom and Dad are Fighting, and it is pledge season. We want you to help support this show and other Slate podcasts by joining Slate Plus right now. All you have to do is go to Slate.com slash Mom and Dad Plus, you will be supporting this podcast and other shows. You will be getting Slate Plus content delivered right to your inbox and your podcast app ad-free shows when you join Slate Plus. Gabe, why else should our listeners consider doing this right now? If you've been listening to this show for a while, then you know that the three of us talk in sometimes very personal terms about our families and our family lives. That's what this show is about. But uh, if you're a Slate Plus member, then you would be hearing the special segment we do at the end of the show when we've been talking to one another for an hour or so. We're feeling a little loose. We're feeling a little punchy. Our guard is down. <laughs> and we will let things slip that you would never hear on the public airwaves. Uh, if you want to know what really goes on up in the wilds of New Hampshire in, in the Lavoie <laughs> Flynn home, for instance. You do. Go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus and sign up uh, and you get to hear the unexpected expurgated, uncensored, unbowdlerized version of Mom and Dad are Fighting. <laughs> and frankly, if you listen to any other Slate podcasts, uh, the same thing applies there. The Slate Plus segments uh, are not always as programmed. They're a little looser. They're a little funkier. The hosts get a little more down and dirty. Um, so if you have ever wondered what, for instance, David Plotz sounds like after work, uh, join Slate Plus via uh, slate.com slash Mom and Dad Plus, uh, and you'll get to hear him on the political gab fest in his more um, more casual and relaxed mode. You'll also be supporting the production of all of these shows and all the other journalism that Slate does. 
Yeah. And if you're, and, and to me, that's like the important thing. I, I just, pretty much every day I read something on Slate that I'm like, man, I'm really glad that someone has taken the time to research this and write about this, especially at a time like now where journalism is so important. And uh, I'm like, we have this and I hope we get to keep it. And one of the ways we get to keep it is by supporting journalism uh, on Slate by signing up for uh, Slate Plus. And you can do that here at slate.com slash mom and dad plus. And like Gabe said, yeah, we do... The ties get loosened. The you know we uh, the the diapers loosen a little bit in the Slate Plus segment, and you're gonna hear some things that maybe we wouldn't say in the regular segment. So I encourage you to put on your grown up ears and come join us in the VIP room. It's just thirty five dollars for the first year at slate.com slash mom and dad plus. Help us beat those other podcasts. Help us get more Slate Plus listeners than any other podcast in the Slate feeds. Slate.com slash mom and dad plus and thanks. Uh, we're talking now with Suzanne Buffard. She's a writer with a background in child development and education, and her new book is The Most Important Year, Pre-Kindergarten and the Future of Our Children. Suzanne, thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to ask you first to frame the, the topic of your book. What is it that's changed in how we think about pre-K over the past 10 years or so? We've learned so much more about how children's brains develop in the earliest years and about how their social and emotional and cognitive skills develop as a result. So we know now more than ever that those first five years of life are really critical for setting the foundation for learning for the rest of life. And at the same time, we've been studying pre-K programs, and we have more knowledge than ever before about the fact that high-quality pre-K programs are really helpful for kids and families and society, and we know more than ever before about what makes a good program. In what way are pre-K programs important both for kids and for their families? For children, they're beneficial because kids learn how to be learners in good pre-K programs. They learn to be curious and approach problems and questions with critical thinking skills, and they get excited about learning. So they're not there to memorize the names of shapes and memorize a list of vocabulary words, but in good programs, they learn to really understand what makes something a triangle or what a vocabulary word really means and how you use it. And they also gain a lot of social and emotional skills in pre-K programs. And this is one of the most critical things that happens in early childhood programs. And there are things that children can learn in a group and with a teacher that they don't necessarily learn at home. They learn all kinds of skills like how to follow the teacher's instructions, how to wait your turn, how to work out a conflict with another child. And a lot of those things are things that really only come up in a group setting like a classroom. And as we all know, our children tend to act differently when we're not there. And so they can really learn some independence and some additional skills. So there are all kinds of ways that children benefit. And studies show us that kids who went to high-quality pre-K are doing better in school and also doing better in terms of their social and emotional skills down the line. We have data that goes up until at least fifth grade that shows us that. But what sometimes gets lost is that pre-K programs are also really important for families. And as a lot of us know, many families are really struggling to make ends meet. And with so many families where all available parents are in the workforce, it can be a real stress to pay for 
early education and care. And there have been some recent studies that have showed that when children are in high-quality and dependable early education programs, families are able to enter the workforce, they're able to work more hours, and they're able to do things like save money and buy a house that are important for families and also important for our economy. And in the book, I write in particular about one family who really struggles with making it all work and making ends meet. And the mom talks a lot about how they'd like to save for a house and they would like to make other career decisions that they can't make because of the cost of early childcare. Um, and they end up actually deciding not to send their youngest child to preschool, even though the mom and dad have education backgrounds, because they simply just can't make the economics work. And then the third piece is that research is showing us that there are benefits for society of these programs. So first of all, we now have long-term data that show that when kids are in good pre-K programs, they actually cost society less money in the long run. And that for every dollar invested in these programs, society saves somewhere between three and $10 in terms of the people who went to pre-K are less likely to be incarcerated, they're less likely to be on public assistance, and they're more likely to be productive members of society. So it's really, it, it benefits everybody all around. Uh, I think a lot of us were hoping that uh, early childhood education would be high on the agenda of a, a Hillary Clinton administration, uh, and, and we didn't get that. Uh, so what's the status of early childhood education policy in, in our present nightmare dystopia that we seem to be trapped in instead of that? <laughs> well, so far, this administration has said very little about early education. And it's a big contrast to the Obama administration, which invested an unprecedented amount of money in early childhood and specifically in creating publicly funded pre-K programs. I wouldn't be surprised to see any efforts that do arise focus on vouchers and school choice, because we know that that's been a focus of this administration's officials in the K-12 space. Um, and I think that it's important to keep in mind both the pros and cons of that kind of approach. There are some voucher programs now, especially for families with limited incomes, and they have improved access, which is really important. But there's very little evidence that those kinds of programs do much to improve quality. And we all know, you know, from our own personal lives and also from research studies that early care is really only beneficial if it's a good program. And you'll sometimes hear people talk about, well, the market will take care of quality. And this idea that if you give parents choice in where to send their kids to school, that the market will sort out what are the good programs and the bad programs. And certainly, parental choice is a really important part of the early education system. But if we focus too much on the market-driven aspect of it, there are a couple of problems. One is that then the focus is really on the financial bottom line for centers and not on what's doing what's best for kids. And the other that I really worry about is that it takes time to sort out which programs are going to be more and less popular. And in that time, you risk losing years' worth of children who only get one shot at their first years of school, and they can't afford for us to be kind of futzing with what may or may not work. So when we talk about the difference between really great pre-K programs and, and average or mediocre ones, what, what are the really good ones doing that the less good ones aren't doing? And how can parents evaluate their options? Really good programs are helping children 
learn to function in a classroom and learn to be learners. They get them excited about learning. They teach them how to be part of a group and how to follow the expectations of a classroom. And they help children learn in developmentally appropriate ways. So what that means is that they teach children through play. They're not showing flashcards or drilling kids on vocabulary words. They're setting up environments that allow kids to explore in hands-on ways and really delve into things, make some choices about what they're learning. And one of the things that is most important but sometimes hardest to see in a classroom is that good teachers, which are really the crux of good programs, help draw out children's thinking, and they help them learn to be critical thinkers. And they do that by engaging in rich conversations with kids, by asking them open-ended questions and nudging them to think a little more. For example, in Boston, which is one of the places that I studied and wrote about in my book, the coaches who help mentor the early childhood teachers encourage teachers to ask children questions like, how do you know? that something's going to work? Or what do you think is going to happen if you do this? And those kinds of interactions are really important because they they help kids to be thinkers and be active in making their own learning. So they're not there like little passive vessels that we're lecturing at and telling them things. They're really engaging in the learning process themselves. And the other piece of that, too, is that good teachers develop great relationships with kids. So you asked what parents should look for. And I always tell people the most important thing is to look at the teachers and how they interact with the kids. Don't worry too much about the facility and, you know, whether it's fancy and brand new coat of paint. What really matters is what's happening between teachers and kids. And good teachers get down on a child's level. They look them in the eye. They treat them with respect. And when they are dealing with kids who are acting in challenging ways, they're not focused on discipline and punishment and yelling at kids, but they're focused on redirecting kids and helping them understand what the expectations are and giving them tools and strategies so that they can do that. So those are the things that, that really matter the most. And I often tell people that my children have gone to a wonderful preschool that has no windows. And that was not my intention. I didn't look for a place without any natural light. But I sent them there because the teachers are wonderful and they get little kids. And that's what makes for a really good learning experience. I've got a question for you. So I, first of all, uh, uh, live in a district that offered, when my kids were little, like three-day-a-week, half-day preschool. And for me, the huge, huge thing was they learn how to put on their own coats and boots, which you should not like undervalue that as a thing to take exactly. away from preschool. Because again, that is something they'll only get in a classroom environment where there are 15 kids and they have to put on their own coats and boots. But I live in a state where we don't have full day kindergarten in every district. In fact, we just passed a bill where the state will fund some of full-day kindergarten for districts that opt in. Um, there's no state funding for preschool. It's very much seen as either a luxury or a childcare thing that you pay for. And um, as you talked about the barriers to that, there was a lot of um, movement toward full-day kindergarten by people working in my state, working with legislators, working with the governor to try to lobby for it. Is there that kind of state-by-state 
messaging for preschool? Because I know a lot of these things are are really local control issues, right? Not national movements that a, that a district or a state can just, you know, hop on board with and be mandated to do. Yeah, one of the things that's so complicated about pre-K is that it's such a patchwork of funding and regulations and policies and looks very different from state to state and then even within states, you know, at the, at the local level, it can look very different. New Hampshire is one of seven states that does not have any state funding for pre-K. That's not to say that there are not some local communities that are providing it through school districts or through state or, or through other local funding. But that gives you a sense of the fact that most states are moving in the direction of having some level of publicly funded pre-K for some kids. There are a very small number of places that fund pre-K for everybody. One of them is Oklahoma, which is a little surprising, but that's a whole other, it's a whole interesting story in itself. And then there are places like Washington, D.C. and New York City that at a local level have pre-K for everyone. But then there are many other states and localities that are just focused on, for example, kids with um, either with disabilities or from families with really limited incomes. So we're definitely, I think, moving in the direction of universal pre-K, but we're definitely not there yet. What is the kind of policy strategy for the movement to make universal pre-K a thing? Is it to try and address it on a national level? Is it to wait for a friendlier administration? Is it, is it, is it to work state by state? What, can you tell us a little bit about how, that, how people are trying to make that happen? Yeah, I think that advocates and supportive policymakers are trying to work from many different angles and find any of the windows in that will work. And if you look at places that have longstanding and high quality pre-K, or in some cases, universal pre-K, it's happened in a variety of ways. So in recent years, we watched the New York City pre-K initiative play out, um, which ultimately was a, a largely state funding, but there was a lot of you know local state collaboration going on there for the funding. Then you have a place like Florida, where it was created by a ballot measure that voters actually voted for it. And then you have a place like New Jersey, where it was mandated by the courts. There, was a, there were a series of education financing lawsuits that successfully argued that the system of funding schools by property taxes is inequitable. And so the state of New Jersey was required to create a number of remedial programs for children in the 30 lowest income communities, and one of them was pre-K. So historically, the movement has come from a lot of different places, and that is still the case now. I think that in the Obama administration, because there was so much interest at the federal level, a lot of advocates were focusing their efforts there. But even then, it's important to know that the federal funding gets funneled through states and gets administered through states and then sometimes through local communities. So I think it's still, I think it's still the case that, that people are kind of coming at it from every direction. Mm. Also, so I I think a lot about parents who are in widely varying situations. So for some people, the specter of, 
of pre-K is feels like a relief. Like, oh, this is great. And now I can send my kids somewhere. They'll get the educational foundation they need. I feel great relief. And for other parents in other situations, the idea that this is a thing you should be doing, it feels like another burden, like it's stressful. Like, oh my God, there isn't such a program. Or if there is, it's prohibitively expensive. Or how do I do that? Or so on and so forth. Or like, these are only half days. And, you know, so I guess my question is like, what advice do you have, since universal pre-K is not a thing right now, what advice do you have for parents who who don't have access to it for a variety of reasons? That's a really great question and really important question. I think what really matters at the end of the day is that all children have high-quality learning experiences, whether it's at home or it's with a grandparent or, or neighbor or whether it's in a structured early education program. And so I think it's incumbent upon researchers and writers and journalists and, and all of us kind of in the field to get the word out to everybody, not just the teachers, about the kinds of things that help promote kids' learning. And it's often simpler things than people realize. So, you know, you shouldn't be worried about whether your three or four-year-old knows all their letters and is starting to read. What you should be more concerned about is that they're in the habit of noticing things and learning as part of daily life. So, for example, when you're walking up the stairs, counting the number of stairs with your child or pointing out signs in the world, like if, you know, your child's name is Suzanne and you see a stop sign and you say, hey, that sign starts with the same letter as your name starts with, all those kinds of little ways of making learning part of everyday life are really good for kids. And as we were talking about before with the putting on jackets and boots and things, that's absolutely fundamental, those kinds of independent skills for young children. And it's great to develop them in a classroom sometimes because you have the social norms of other kids doing it. And also, you know, I don't know about your kids, but my kids are way more independent when I'm not there. You know, they <laughs> pack up their own lunchbox yeah. in the preschool classroom yeah. and put on their shoes, but they would never let on to me that they can do those things. <laughs> but teaching them those kinds of skills, whether it's in a classroom or it's at home, also develops all these other skills because it teaches them that they can be independent and they can be confident and that if you just try and try and try and try different ways and persist, even when it's really hard, that you'll get there. So all those kinds of skills are really important to build. And it would be great to get to a place where we can make sure that all kids are in a high-quality classroom that's doing all of those things. But until then, we need to keep building up the capacity of all parents to do those things with our kids at home. Suzanne Buffard, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank the, you. Suzanne Buffard is a uh, writer and researcher. The, her book is The Most Important Year, Pre-Kindergarten and the Future of Our Children. Okay, time now for a listener question. This one is from Becky. Uh, if you've got a question that you would like us to tackle, you can give us a call at 424-255-7833. Uh, now let's hear from Becky. Hey, Mom and Dad of Fighting. This is Becky. Hey, I love you guys and love the show. Um, I have two stepchildren, ages 11 and 8. A couple of years ago, my husband's ex-wife relocated two hours away from us. We had the children four out of five weekends, and while we share the driving equally with the kids' mom for trade-offs, everything else pretty much falls to us. If we want to see a ball game or concert or go to an open house, we have to drive the two hours, and that's if we're lucky enough to get off work in time to make those events. So I say this only to show that we already feel a bit um, 
shut off from a good part of the kids' lives. But now, for the first time, my 11-year-old stepdaughter asked if we could change weekends with their mom so that she could go to her friend's Halloween party. Now, we often adjust the schedule between all of us for family get-togethers, especially around the holidays, but this is a first request from one of our children for a reschedule. And we knew this was eventually going to happen, but honestly, we were hoping we'd have a few more years before it came up. We know that as they become teenagers, there will be more and more weekend social events that their moms they will want to attend. We want them to have a rich social life, but we also want to see them. Do we, quote, force the kids to come stay with us even when they would rather do otherwise? Or do we just accept this as an inevitable part of the kids growing up? My thought was to give them a certain number of passes that they could use throughout the year. Uh, my husband, understandably, says no way. He wants every minute with the kids that he can get. So I just wanted to get any ideas that you might have on guidelines we could set to achieve a reasonable balance going forward. Thanks for your thoughts. This feels like a really sad question to me. Uh, Rebecca, do you, you're a step-parent. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, and 11 sounds about the right age. Uh, my stepdaughter, Lily, we had a really, you know, structured custody arrangement with her from when she was a little kid. Um, you know, it was the weekends. We had like every other weekend and every other Wednesday or something like that. And um, about 11 or 12, she started asking for passes to do things with her friends and at school. And there was some resistance to that. Uh, my husband was resistant to it initially. And we quickly came to realize, um, and I I now believe this, definitely worked in my family. I can't say it would work for every family, is that the more flexibility we gave her to be with her friends, the more willing she would be to be flexible when we asked her for time. So the thing that I think it's really important to understand is that that adolescence, and it comes a little earlier for girls than it does for boys, your friends become your family. They become your emotional priority over your parents. And that is a natural part of growing up. And if you, you know, if her parents weren't divorced, if your stepdaughter's parents weren't divorced, there probably would be a lot of built-in flexibility that your stepdaughter is experiencing through her friend's parents, probably just sort of understanding, yes, I have a sleepover this night. I'm not going to be home this day. And to some extent, it's, you have to remember it's not her fault that um, this is her family situation. This is just her family situation. And to deny her the opportunities to have those interactions could be harmful in your relationship with her. So I'm not sure a set number of passes is the right solution either. I think if this is the first time she has asked I would let this one go and just say yes. And if she starts asking every weekend, then it's time to have the conversation about, you know, we really want to spend time with you. Let's figure out a way to make this work. But you really need to, I think, listen to her when you have that conversation and understand that the relationship she has with her friends are critical, uh, not just in the, you know, in the realm of your all of your lives, but really critical in her life and to separate her from those relationships because you have a schedule you set up with her mom, 
you know, a few years ago when the divorce happened and the parent agreement was hammered out, like that's arbitrary at, at a certain point as a kid develops. It really is about their life and doing what's best for them and nurturing them and helping them become independent and move forward. The other thing that I'll say is that her opting out of this weekend is also an excellent opportunity for you to spend time with her brother on his own. And those are times that you might find you really enjoy and really will enhance the relationship you have with him going forward. So I guess my answer here is let her opt out. I mean, there she is going to reach an age in a year or two or three where it will seem absurd that you can you think you can tell her where to be because she will be like <laughs> she'll look like an adult and she'll be adult sized. My kids are at that age now at 14 and 16 where any idea that we can force them to be at a certain place, it's just like not even possible. So this is the time to set the relationship on a path where she will want to be with you. And the way to get someone to want to be with you is to not force them to be with you when their heart is somewhere else. Yeah, that's hmm. what that's what makes me so sad for for the father. Um he he right. obviously like he misses his daughter. She lives 2 hours away. He doesn't get to see her during the week. That's so sad. It must be very hard and then when it's his time with her, it's precious and he's clinging to it and that's out of love and that's great. And yet, out of that love, he might be doing something that is only going to make her uh, push away and resent him and um, terrible, difficult situation. But um, yeah, I think like if you tell a teenage girl like, no, you have to spend the whole weekend in some boring town where none of your friends live um, just because mm -hmm. I say so, that mm -hmm. is not the way to a teenager's heart, unfortunately. The best solution mm -hmm. here. Uh, is if you could um, fix her up with some attractive um, local teenager <laughs> oh, and <ew. laughs> and make her really like not in a not in a really obvious way, but just like if there's anybody who she might be interested in, just leave mm. that person sort of hanging around so that she can notice them, and then maybe she'll want to spend the weekends with you. <laughs> but unless you can pull that off, which admittedly it's a tall order, um, then I think you have to give her a fair amount of leeway here. What do you think, Carvel? This is interesting. I um I had the experience that Rebecca used to always describe where I had one answer going into it, but then I listened to Rebecca talk and now I'm rethinking my whole thing. Um because at the beginning my we didn't we don't do a step parenting thing, although we're kind of getting to something of a step parenting thing what with Joe being having moved in with someone and he's kind of like slowly building himself into a step parent. But uh what what we did deal with scheduling stuff and you know the week here, week there and this schedule and two days here and two days there. And we felt and I still think we feel this way that it was really important to have regularity in the schedule because kids tend to like to know what to expect. And then we found that once we started letting things be flexible, then there was just kind of no end to it. And then and then you got resistance every time you said no to something. It was like, well, you let me switch it this day. Why didn't you let me switch it now? And then so we found that it was better to keep a certain amount of regularity. So that's initially what I was going to say. I was going to say like, that was my starting point. I didn't quite know how to deal with what you have rightly pointed out, both of you, which is the incredible emotional aspect of this, because it, it is sad. And I do know what that feeling is like a little bit as a parent of uh, an 11, now 12-year-old daughter to have that feeling that, yes, she she her needing to get away from me in order to go do her, which you want her to do, but then that breaks your heart because you still kind of need her. And that's, that is one of the, I mean, that is one of the things about obsolescence in parenting. <laughs> and, um, and so a, a solution occurred to me, which is that um, 
I I would suggest maybe um, what if you kept the schedule regularly, but the friend came to visit you so that she could still spend time with the friend. I know that in this case, the Halloween party obviously is not going to relocate to this town two, two hours away. But if you do feel like it's important to keep the schedule regular, you can concede in other ways and say like, but I know you really want to see your friends. And like, I would love for your friends to come out here. I'll even like, when I come pick you up, I'll even bring your friends and they can spend a weekend out here, et cetera, et cetera. Assuming that's logistically possible, that might be a nice compromise. That way the dad still gets the regular time. The schedule still remains relatively unbroken so that, because I do think that what I do, I am a little bit more of a structuralist, although it may not sound like it from the way I describe my life, than a lot of parents. I do think that there is something really useful in structure for kids because once you start saying, well, this is flexible and this and this and this, then pretty soon I found with my kids and maybe just my kids are assholes that once you once you start letting one thing go, then they're just like, well, why can't everything go? And then everything becomes like a 90-minute argument. Um, and so in this way, if you're able to bring the friends out to stay with you this way the schedule remains the same your daughter gets to build the friendships which rebecca is right are so important and i really really want to like double up on what rebecca said that that i really relate to that having watched how important it is for my daughter um and so maybe that's some way to do all that but if that can't happen i would side with rebecca and say that because i I actually think everything she said is right especially the part about as the child grows you get to have a more a more layered and nuanced conversation about them being flexible with you about what your relationship needs are. And I found that my kids are pretty open to that level of discourse. Yeah, bringing the friends out for the weekend is a great idea if you can pull it off. It, it seems like there's a, a measure of like bribery is probably going to be useful here. Like mm-hmm. to the extent yeah. that you can like bring out three friends, they're going to have a slumber party. They're going to get to stay up later than they usually do. Yeah. You're going to take right. them to whatever is the fun kid attraction. Like mm-hmm. it's just going to be an awesome weekend and it's going to make her super excited to do it again in two weeks or whatever it is. Um, I, I, I think you got to sort of pull out all the stops a little bit. Yeah. I don't. I don't even think that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> really? Why not? Why well, no, I, I don't that? think it's a bad idea, of course, to make her friends feel welcome. But I don't uh-huh. think that's the same as as spending time with your friends in the space where you are friends, which is in the town where you all live and go to school and where all the things are that you want to do. I mean, Lily, we would have her friends over when she was little to try to like get her to like want to be with us more, and it felt like they were visiting. It felt like it didn't feel like she was bringing them home. It felt like she was visiting with a visitor Uh, and it changed. It it wasn't like the awesome weekend with a bunch of kids sleeping in your basement. It was it was like we're I'm bringing my friend an hour away from where they want to be to be in a house that they don't know. (laughs) And it, it was never it only got comfortable when we started bringing her friends on vacations with us, which cost a lot more. But then we actually got right. to know them and spend meaningful time with them. Right. And then, you know, her friends started coming over and coming up with her more because, you know, they had more time with us and they got comfortable with us. But I don't know. I mean, mm. I I don't think it's this girl's fault that her parents live two hours apart. And I think that in some ways it's going to feel like she's being punished for a circumstance that she has no control over. Mm. So I, I think that this idea of like she owes us time, I just I don't think kids owe you time. I really don't. I and right. I, I think that and I think that to to continue to push that idea is going to hurt your relationship. So if you give her flexibility, 
Mm. You know, and she and, and she might, you know, my daughter, my stepdaughter, Lily, when we started giving her flexibility, she started skipping all kinds of weekends. But then guess what? Whenever, whenever we ask her to show up for something, she really wants to. She knows it's important because we're really asking her to show up. And I mm. would prefer seeing her less and having her want to be here than seeing her more often because a schedule says that she's supposed to. But, but does Kevin feel that way? Because so that's I mean, because she's he your does stepdaughter, now. but she's his daughter. <laughs> no, he, he definitely does now. Yeah. But one of the things this brings up, actually, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. And I was just thinking of it when you said it, which is it's this question of home. And I think I think the real emotional, the real sadness of what the situation as described. And this is really hard is that because your assumption is based on the idea that the town two hours away is the kid's home and, and the father is not the kid's home and that that's not home. And so mm-hmm. if you have friends, like, I mean, th- we have had this experience where our kids, our kids were like, we have two homes. There's my home with my mom, my home with my dad. And so the kids coming to visit at either home is you're still coming to my home. And they can go to school from either home, right? They, they go to school but, from both houses. Yeah, yeah. Going to school. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a different situation. But what you're situation. describing, yeah, that's true. But what you're describing really is based on the idea. And I think this might be the part that's really sad for the dad. And I don't even think you're wrong. I just, it just hurts my heart to hear that. This daughter doesn't think of the dad's home as a home because it's like what you described is that we're visiting this other place, this whole other place. It isn't my home. It isn't my space. It isn't my place. And um, yeah, maybe you're right about that. But that just uh, that's sad, I guess, is what I'm saying. My my yeah. boys my boys' father lives in the same town I live in. It's a very different situation than with Lily, who lives an hour away. It really is, and that it adds mm-hmm. a lot to that dynamic. They don't, you know, they might prefer one house over another because the rules are different or because the food's different sure. or whatever. But like, the town is their home because that's where their friends are. They have access to all the things they would have access to when they're at either house, and that makes a huge, huge difference. And it makes it a lot easier to adhere to a schedule, an arbitrary schedule that, by the way, adults set up without their permission or input like 10 years ago, you know? Do you think it's possible for a kid to feel truly at home in two different places? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I think it's different kind of life, but I think it, I, I think it takes work. I think the parents have to really work together to get that done. They have to... Because my kids have had both situations where they've felt at home both places and they haven't. And it has a lot to do with how I am dealing with their dad and how he's dealing with me. And we're in a really good place right now. um, So I feel like they do feel comfortable Mm. in both places Mm -hmm. and and they can kick off their feet and relax on the couch in both places. But it wasn't always that way. I've seen it be both ways. So I do think it's possible. Interesting. So some of this may have to do with how how well the caller can navigate that relationship with the daughter's uh, mother and, and Maybe, yeah. her family at, at the other house. All right, a difficult question, and, and uh, I hope we were able to be helpful. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself 
and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Time for um, recommendations. Do you have a recommendation, Rebecca? I do. And this is a big one, um, only because I forget, and I don't think this is um, going to be novel to maybe like 60% of people listening, but my recommendation is if you are in a position where you can and you're only not doing it for some arbitrary reason because you think it'll be like more responsibility, forget it. Get a dog. Absolutely get your kids a dog. (laughs) Uh, And here's the reason why. I'm not going to point to the many, many, many scholarly articles that prove that dogs create more empathetic kids or kids who have fewer allergies or kids who exercise more or adults who exercise. I'm not going to point to any of that. I'm going to point to a specific thing, which is that when there is a dog in the house, and there are two dogs in my house, there is a a creature that everyone loves, that everyone loves. And no matter what is going on in the family, there is agreement that we all love this dog. It creates opportunities to talk about something that we all have in common. It creates opportunities for us to all feel something together, even if we're all out of step with each other. And finally, my big selling point for getting a dog, and this is worth Every extra hour of work, it will be on the parents because, by the way, it will be the parents' job to take care of your stupid dog. Uh, my son, Teddy, had a, kind, of, kind of had a rough week this week. He's kind of down. This morning, he got up. He's shuffling around the house. I could tell he's not starting off the day on the right foot. He picked up one of our dogs and sat on the couch with that dog, just cuddling like a teddy bear the entire time while he was waiting to leave for school. And that dog brings everyone in my house and the kids most of all a tremendous amount of comfort and solace in their times of need. So get a dog. Stop resisting it just because you don't like muddy paw prints in your foyer or because you feel like you're going to have to go on two walks a day. Those reasons do not outweigh all the things that a dog will bring to your children's lives. So get a dog already. Just do it. That's my recommendation. Was that (laughs) recommendation sponsored by my wife and children? (laughs) <laughs> no, but Gabe, I, I told Just you before curious. we started taping that you weren't going to like it, and I have picked up that you are the dog resistor. Just stop it. Don't resist. Get the dog. It will make your I, house messier, but it'll make your life better. I guarantee it. You make, you make some good I, points. I actually have to say that I was the dog resistor in our family. Maybe this is a gendered thing. I was the for years. I was the dog resistor, and this is when the kids were really little. And then what they did, and I will never forgive them for this. And also. It's the best thing that ever happened to me was one day when I was at work, they got a dog without asking me. (laughs) Christ. (laughs) They rescued a Chihuahua pug mix off the street that our neighbors had found. And it was like nursing for a while and called us and was like, do you guys want this dog? And we put up the posters and we couldn't find it. And we, you know, like went to the thing and got all the shots. And um, that dog, Angeliki, what everything Rebecca said is 100% right. That is the one thing, no matter what's happening, that we all agree on. That dog gives so much love. Yes, it's a pain in the ass. Yes, all that two walks a day and and sometimes pooping in the house and whatever. But, oh, my God, I can't imagine life without her. And I, I resisted her on so many levels. I did not want a dog. I did not want a little dog. I used to be one of those people that judge little dogs. Uh, I did not want a chihuahua <laughs> because they're annoying. And, they, you know, and she's a pug, so she's a chihuahua who snorts. She's a mess. And also, she is the most valuable. We always say she's the best person in our family, and we yep. all love her. So, yep, second. All right. Well, I'm glad to know that you two, Carvel, are on my family's payroll. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them to that. send the check, too. <laughs>
Uh, Carvel, what's your uh, what's your actual authentic recommendation rather than my your actual- sponsored content recommendation? <laughs> my organic recommendation is is something equally as heartfelt, which is that I remembered I used to do this when the kids were little, and I actually started redoing it again. Which is that whenever one of my kids annoys me, I give them a hug and a kiss on the forehead, and um, I highly recommend that as a um, defusing technique for my own frustration. So when my kids are really like um, behaving in a way that really pisses me off and I can tell that I'm actually about to kind of lose it, a lot of times I'll just give them a hug and a kiss on the forehead. And just doing that in that moment doesn't have anything to do with them. It reminds me, you know what? I actually really love and value this person. And so even though their current behavior is frustrating to me, it's not worth losing my temper over or saying or doing anything that would be harmful or hurtful to them because I love them a lot. And I used to do that a lot when they were little, like four, five, six, seven, and then I sort of forgot about it and I just started doing it again. And my son thinks it's really funny, but it also, because now the tension goes both ways because it's a teenager and uh, it also, it diffuses the tension for both of us. So my recommendation is a hug and a kiss on the forehead when your children are frustrating you. That's a good recommendation. Um, I'm and a going- dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible recommendation. <laughs> I'm going to recommend um, a book uh, for young children. It's called Owl Babies, and it's written by Martin Waddell. Um, we had it when Eliza was very little, and now we have it when, when Leo is little, and, and they it's been very useful for both of them. It's a really simple story. It's three baby owls in a nest waiting for their owl mother to come back, and they are nervous that she's not going to come back, and they wait, and they wait, and then she comes back. Uh, and that's it. And it's the story is beautifully told, and the and the pictures are very nice. But there's something about that story that is so powerfully affecting and reassuring for young children who are often dealing with separation anxiety about their own parents. Um, I, we we had it at home and we loved it, and then we sort of forgot about it as you do. And then um, Leo's in pre-K now, and uh, they have some books in there. And and every day this week and last week. When I've taken him there, we, we read one book before I drop him off, and he always goes straight over to the shelf and pulls out Owl Babies, and we sit down together, and we read it every day, and then he says, okay, bye. And it's obviously, like, really useful to him, and, and it's probably really useful to me, too. Uh, the book is Owl Babies by Martin Waddell. And that's our show. If you have a question that you would like us to address, call us at 424-255-7833. Connect with us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash momanddadarefighting. This show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy, I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll see you next week on Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.